I think we all know that Allison Brown has been working hard through, uh, through, through this summer, uh, through the last year really, working on our children's ministry. She's been our children, children's ministries director, and she is uh, just about to go to college. So we have taken the next step, and we just want you all to know that Mike and Becky Young together are uh, going to be taking over the children's ministry. Uh, leading that. So if, if they give you a phone call and say, hey, can you help in this area or that area, pay attention to them because that's, uh, that's, that's what they're doing for our church. And if we don't invest in the young generation, we don't have a future. Amen? That was pretty pathetic. If we don't invest in the young generation, we don't have a future. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have to think like that. Okay, turn with me to Psalm 30, if you will, the 30th Psalm. Uh, we've uh, <clears throat> been spending some time uh, this summer, <coughs> excuse me, looking at the book of Psalms, learning about how we should think about God and uh, how we can express worship to God. The Psalms uh, are poetry. It's one of the poetic books of the Bible. Uh, Hebrew poetry is a little bit different than ours. Uh, we, it's not real good poem, poetry to me if it doesn't rhyme. Something's got to rhyme if it's going to be a poem. But Hebrew poetry didn't rhyme. It was like they would say the same thing two same ways or two opposite ways. Uh, say the opposite thing. And we're going to see that in Psalm 30. But what I really want to emphasize as, as we read through this, and I want to read through it in, in its entirety from the NIV here in just a second. Uh, but what I want us to see is how... David expresses his appreciation to God for what he has done. And pay attention because you'll see he gives a prayer request and then he goes back and thanks God for something God's already done. And then he'll give another prayer request and he intermingles those. In our culture, I think most of our prayer is God give me this, God give me that. We don't spend a lot of time say, saying thank you Lord for what you have done. Because reflecting on what he has done builds our faith for what he's going to do. So let's pay attention to how David says this, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 30. We're going to read all 12 verses. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from the going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. 
So he's reflecting on God and what God has done. Uh, the one thing I want us to, uh, to see is that most Bible scholars say that David was writing this as a, as a prayer of dedication at the temple, when the temple is dedicated. The problem is the temple wasn't built until after David died. And God told him it would not be him that built the temple. So why is he writing a poet, poem in dedication of the temple? It's by faith. He believes it's going to happen. So he writes it as if it's happening now. I think sometimes in our prayers, we ought to write those prayers as if we expect God's given us the answer. Not just after he's done it, but in expectation of that. So as I looked over the 30th Psalm, uh, I saw that David really said in five different ways, you have saved my soul. If you're a Christian and you believe the Lord has saved your soul, how do we say that? How do we express that? How do we verbalize that? David has done it for us in five ways, and I want to look at those five ways and uh, expound on it a little bit. Here's number one. You have lifted me out. If you've got the, the outline in front of you, you can write that word. He has lifted me out. Thank God. You have lifted me. <coughs> lifted. You know what lifted means? I'm not, I'm not down here. You have lifted me out of that. There is a principle in Christian circles, all denominations. It's called redemption and lift. It's a principle uh, that, that fits in any culture, in any time era since, since Christ rose from the dead. If someone opens their heart and accepts Christ as their personal Savior and lets the Spirit of God lead them, there is a redemption and there is a lift because a person now makes room for God, they begin making different choices. They make different kinds of decisions. They associate with a different kind of people. They do a different kind of thing with their life and it lifts them up economically, socially, with their reputation. In every case, when someone gives their life to the, to the Lord, when a culture changes because Christ has stepped in, it lifts that culture up in every aspect of their life. If you're living the same kind of life you did before you came to Christ, there's something wrong with that. There should be a redemption and lift that has taken place in your life. Adam Clark says it like this, I will lift thee up for thou hast lifted me up. So if the Lord's lifted you up, we have a responsibility then to lift him up with our life. So David says, you have lifted me, lifted me. Think about this. He started out as a poor shepherd boy, right? One of Jesse's boys, 12 sons. You know which one, you know how David ranks among the 12, right? He is last. You know, when you're the youngest in your family, you know, every, uh, you get all the dirty jobs. You get what nobody else wants to do. And he saw himself as that shepherd boy. When the prophet came to select who was going to be king out of one of these 12, the father didn't even call number 12 in. Had the other 11 line up. 
And the spirit said, no, 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 it's not one of these. Jesse, do you have another son? Oh, yeah, he's my youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. Well, let's bring him in. And he was the one to be anointed. He brought him from the position of a shepherd's boy where even his father didn't expect anything from him to being the king of the whole country. Now that is redemption and lift. God lifts us up to a higher place. Now I noticed the NIV said, you have lifted me out. And the King James Version says, you have lifted me up. Well, I wanted to know, okay, what does the original say? I want to know what was the intent of the author. And I found out something I never would have expected. That Hebrew word there that's translated up and out really literally means hang down, dangle. That's what it means. You have dangled me. It's the word picture of a bucket being lowered down into a well to draw water. I'm being dangled. I am not in the pit anymore, but I'm not in heaven either. I'm halfway between. Lord, I got, uh, we feel like we have one foot on the earth and the other foot in heaven, but where do we fit? This means I'm dangled. And I'm being held where I am. God's got a hold of the rope. God's lifted me up. He's lifted me out. And he's holding on. Now I suppose if in my foolishness, if I found some way to sever the tie between me and God, I suppose I could fall back into the pit. But if I don't sever that tie, God's hanging on to it. He's holding on to me. The next time you feel like you're going through a hard time, just remember, I'm being dangled. I'm being dangled. This is what this is about. And God's holding on. Reminds me of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul said, What can separate me from the love of God? Nothing can separate me from the love of God because he's holding on. And no matter what my circumstances look like, God still loves me without question. David's greatest fear was that he'd fall into the hands of his enemies because they would have no mercy. But he knows if he falls into the hands of God, God's full of mercy. God's full of love. He cares about us. Somebody say amen. He cares about us. All right, let's look at the second way he says that. In verse 2, he says, you have healed me. And when we think of healing, we typically think of how that's associated with health. And we think about how that's associated with our physical bodies. So we think about physical healing. The word translated healed here is the Hebrew word Rapha. You may have heard of that before. Jehovah Rapha is one of the compound names of God, the Lord, my healer. And I, so I wanted to look that word up and see, well, what's it originally mean in the original language? And what it means is mended. You have mended me. It's like Martin Luther used the illustration to describe this of a cobbler, a shoemaker, who would take strips of leather and then stitch them together. God has stitched me together. 
He has taken this open wound I have in my life and he's mended it. He's stitched it back together. It's more than my physical healing because every one of us in this room who have ever received a physical healing from God, we're going to turn around and die again. Death is working within us. But this mending, he's talking about more than physical healing. He's talking about a mending in our life. There's two examples of this word Rapha being used uh, that I want to share with us. The first is 1 Kings 18.30. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired, that's the word Rapha, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And we know that repair means he put it back together. He he made it look as good as new. He made it functional again. It's not has anything to do with healing of somebody's body. It has to do with a healing of a religion, a healing of a right relationship with God, taking someone who's, who's in a, a broken relationship with God and bringing them back together again. He put the altar back in its original place so it could be functional again. The second example is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, If my people, notice who he's talking about, my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Heal, that word heal that's the Hebrew word Rapha. It has to do with being mended, brought back together again. And I don't, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but I think our country desperately needs a healing. We, we, there's this deeper and deeper divide in America. And the people either lean over to this side or they lean over to that side, but they're all 100% Americans. So how can we function? How, how can we survive as a society when every 48 years we're swinging back and forth between extreme liberalism and extreme conservatism and a little bit further this way and a little bit further that way? Sooner or later, there's got to come a mending, a stitching together, bringing us back in common ground. Because we can't survive like we are. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Something has to change. If my people... Not the nuts out there, but my people, God's people, the believers who are called by my name, that would be Christian, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven and forgive the country's sin and heal our land. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. So... Who needs a mended life? Who's got things going on in your life that need some mending, need some repair, need some healing? Maybe, maybe it's your reputation that needs healed. You've been through some bad things and people have said bad things. Maybe that's what needs healed. God is in the healing business. Jehovah Rapha. Maybe it's your self-confidence that needs some mending. You've been through some reversals and you just lost your confidence. God is the healer, Jehovah Rapha. Maybe it's your destiny. 
your plan for your life, is, your dream has been broken and shattered and you've been left hopeless. His name is Jehovah Rapha. He wants to mend and bring things back together again. So in the, in the 30th Psalm, David says, you have healed me. And he gives God all the credit. Gives God all the credit for that. So if your life is different than it used to be, if God's lifted you up out of a pit, he's given you hope and your, your life is a lot better than it used to be, if that's you, if that's a picture of you, give God all the credit. I mean, at your worst day, at your worst point in life, that was the best you could offer. God stepped in, lifted you up. Give him praise for that. All right, here's number three. The third thing. In verse 3, he says, You have delivered me from the dead. That doesn't mean he'd been killed and uh, God raised him back up again. King James says, You have brought my soul from the grave. It's obviously a word picture he's given us here. You brought my soul from the grave. So I wanted to know. Is that original Hebrew word, is that dead or is that grave? There's a difference to me. I wanted to know what did the original author mean. And I, so I looked that word up and it's the Hebrew word Sheol, which is the place of the dead. When somebody dies, they would go to this place called Sheol. And so it could be dead, it could be grave, it could be translated either way. It didn't help me. In the King James Version, which I have reference books that typically are King James it records it as the grave 31 times in the Bible and translates it as hell 31 times in the Bible and the pit three times in the Bible. It literally means a hollow, a low place, a, like a, a pit, a valley, a hollow. Hollow literally is what it means. So he says, you have delivered me from the low place, from the place where I, I was identified as dead. Another, uh, the, the word translated soul here, you've lifted my soul out. The first place we find this is Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, where he says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word being is the same Hebrew word translated soul in Psalm 30. You have lifted my being, my identity, this inner person, this person on the inside of this body. You have lifted me from death. And if I've been lifted from death, what have I been lifted into? Life. I may not have the full dimension, but I'm heading that direction. The further I can get away from the old dead me, the closer I am to that abundant life Jesus promised. So if the default position for everybody is hell, but I'm not going there anymore, if that's my default position, how do I grab a hold of the alternative? It's real simple. I have to understand that I was destined for hell just as you were, every one of us, 100%. That was our default position. God understood that. He loved us, didn't want us going there, so he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to identify with humans 
live a human life. And then at the end, after 30 some years, he was nailed to the cross. And when he was nailed to the cross, he who had no sin paid the price for those of us that do. He's my substitute. He's my redeemer. Thank God for redemption. That's why Jesus said in the New Testament to Nicodemus, a religious leader, he said, you must be born again. Don't you understand this, Nicodemus? You're a teacher. You're teaching people. You're helping them learn how to live their life, and you don't understand. You must be born again. It's a requirement. It's an essential. You must have new life because the default position is death. So I have to be born again. I have to discover what that means. The Apostle Paul had religion in the New Testament. He was one of the leaders in, the, in religious circles. Some Bible commentators say that he had the equivalent of three Ph.D. degrees, highly educated. He knew the, in, he knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was a, um, a student of the law. He understood religion inside out, but he didn't understand relationship with God. It was just things I have to do. But when he had that encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus to bring persecution to the Christians, it turned him inside out. A light came on, and he didn't understand it yet, but he knew there is a light. I've got, to, I've got to discover this light. I've got to tap into this light. I've got to develop my relationship with the light. Who, first question out of his mouth was, who are you, Lord? I want to know who you are. That ought to be an ongoing question coming out of every one of our mouths. Who are you, Lord? Show me who you are. Show me your heart, because I want to have that kind of heart. Another time, Paul and Silas were locked up in prison because they preached the gospel. And they had him in shackles, and they had all the cell doors closed in the jail. And Paul and Silas, even though they had all this opposition against them, began singing praises to God because it didn't matter what other people thought. What really matters is what does God think. So they began singing praises to God, and right in the middle of their singing praises to God in the middle of the night, an earthquake came. A horrible earthquake shook and rattled those prison doors, and the doors just came open all by themselves. I can understand how an earthquake could do that, but the shackles fell off their hands. I don't know how an earthquake did that. They're free. They're suddenly free, and they don't understand it. Nobody understands it, but everybody in the prison is free. They had been delivered, and all around them there was destruction. That's the thing I appreciate so much about my walk with Christ. The whole world around me, everything around me can be destroyed, but God can deliver me. So I want to stay in his hands. Amen? We need to stay connected to him. All right, we've got to move on. Clock's ticking. Number four, fourth way he says that. In verse 7, he says, you have made my mountain to stand firm. You've made my mountain to stand firm. So what's a mountain represent? A mountain represents something that never moves, never shifts. It was so 
out of this world illogical that a mountain would move, but Jesus used it as an illustration when he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be done. I don't recall that ever having happened anywhere in the world. I, I understand mountain ranges are constantly shifting. I, I understand that. But it takes a couple centuries for it to move just a little bit. But it's always moving. But we're talking about a mountain here that doesn't shift. It can be your reference point because it never moves. In this extremely changing world, I need to grab a hold of something that doesn't change. I need to have something that's fixed, something that's always true, something that never changes. Something that never moves like a multiplication table. Never changes. Century after century. Seven times seven equals 49. It always does. It always will. It's a fixed thing. It's, it's like true north. Polaris. Always in the same position. You can always find where you are if you can find the north star. I need something fixed. I have something fixed. Let me share with you five things that are fixed and never moved. Number one, in the beginning, God. In a world that's always trying to come up with a new idea on how we got here, how the world was created, how the universe came into existence, one thing is a sure thing in my mind, and no science... Uh, no science project ever gets in the way of it, and that is, in the beginning, God. He's always been here, he'll always be here, and no, I can't get my mind around that. Everything I know has a beginning and an end. But in the beginning, God. And when God finally said, let there be light, things began to shift Things began to change, and everything came into existence. And I don't know if when, God's, when, when God began to speak, there was a big bang or not. I don't know, but it was God that caused the big bang, if it's true. So that's the first thing, in the beginning, God. Here's the second thing, it never changes. The wages of sin is death. We can change our culture and say that immorality really isn't immorality, and whatever you feel like is fine, there's nothing right nor wrong, uh, we live in a changing world, and everybody needs to change their views, but it never doesn't change the principle, the wages of sin is death. If we do the things that God equates with sin, it brings about death every time. doesn't make any difference if you go to church or not. It's a principle that's fixed. Here's the third thing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is a firm thing. You can never polish your halo shiny enough that you're not a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. So we're all doomed. We need a redeemer. We desperately need a redeemer. And the fourth thing that never changes is you must be born again. We have to have this light, enlightenment. We have to have the light come on. We have to see uh, the reality of God in our life or we'll never experience the reality of God. You must be born again. And number five, 
no matter what you do, you're never going to change this. Jesus said, I will come again. It's a sure thing. I don't know when it's going to be. I thought it was 30, 40 years ago, but he didn't come yet. It's because he's not willing that any should perish. Seems like every time I pick up the newspaper and read something happening in the world, I say to myself, well, that's another prophecy that we're a little bit closer to the Lord coming back. He is coming back again, no matter what people say, no matter what people think. All right, here's number five, the fifth thing. I think I'm going to make it on time. The fifth way in David's story, he says the Lord touched him. He says, you have turned my wailing into dancing. You've turned my wailing into dancing. King James says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. When I was sad, when I was broken, when my, when my dreams were dashed, when I could see no hope, you turned it into dancing. God loves to take uh, the bad things in our life and turn them into something good. I love that about God. There's nothing hopeless. So he gives us contrasts. Mourning, wailing is, as is an expression of this has really gotten bad. But dancing is an expression that this has really gotten good. It's a celebration. It's a way to express what we feel on the inside. And we typically don't dance at a funeral. We mourn at a funeral. We dance at a party, at a celebration when there's something we're celebrating. Something good has happened. So he says, you have turned, you God, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have turned things around in my life. You've turned the bad into good. You've turned the dark into light. You've turned my blindness into sight. You've done amazing things. It's a positive message he's given us here. So if God turns things from bad into good, the question that should come to our mind is, how, how, what can I do? What, how can I help God turn things around in my life. And I've got three tips here. Tip number one, don't overcorrect. This is what this is what a whole lot of people do right off the bat. They try to overcorrect because they've done all these bad things. They want to do all these good things and they get burned out and they get fried and they walk away from the whole idea of repentance. <clears throat> One of the things I love doing with my grandkids, because they're just old enough, you know, they're, they're learning, they don't have a lot of experience. I love to take them a ride on my ride and mower, after I'm done mowing, of course, and let them put their hands on the steering wheel, and let them try to steer. Now, I control the accelerator, I can stop at any time I want, but they, they're steering. And I, I've noticed this one thing they all do, every one of them, until they learn how, every one of them do the same thing. If they want to go a little bit to the right, they turn the steering wheel all the way to the right. And then they realize, whoa, that was too far. So they turn the wheel all the way to the left. And they spend all their time turning the wheel all the way. They haven't learned how to adjust make with smooth adjustments. They want to go all the way. And I think we have to be careful of our, of our faith walk. We want to get closer to God so we go all the way over here. 
and then we get burned out and frustrated and discouraged because it didn't work like we thought it was going to work. So we go all the way the other way. And God wants us to get a balance and learn how to make these smooth adjustments, mid-course corrections, so that God can do his thing in our life. That's the first thing. Don't overcorrect. Number two, embrace faith. Faith is trusting in God, expecting God to do something. I'm not in this all by myself. It's me and God on this faith journey. <clears throat> and I think the scripture that best represents this is Romans 8, 28, where, where Paul says, and we know, everybody say, we know. <laughs> and we know that in all things, all things means your finances, your relationships, your health, everything. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So there's something there about loving God if you want to see this promise become reality. You got to love him. You got to trust him. And if you do that, God works for the good. He all, he'll take these bad things and work them around to our benefit. And I keep telling myself this. I keep reminding myself this because I'm claiming that promise that when bad things happen, don't get upset. Don't panic. Don't get frustrated. God's going to work it out for my good. Sometimes there's some corrections I can make. But if I can't, don't fall apart. Trust God. God's got a way of turning things around. He's a great turner. In uh, Jeremiah 31, 13, I'll close with this promise. Jeremiah 31, 13. There we go. Then young women will dance. Talking about when Messiah comes. Then young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. God is all about turning us around. The turnaround, the moving from this direction to that direction. He wants to turn us. Let's stand together. Five different ways that... David said, you have changed my soul. You have turned my life around. You have given me purpose. And I just feel, I felt as I was praying about this message, I just felt that the Lord was going to have some people here that were going through a turning point in your life. Something is turning. Something is changing. And you want to let God take the steering wheel. You need to let God take the steering wheel. So if you are in a turning process, if you're, if you're at a turning point, things are shifting in your life, whether you designed it or it's been designed for you, you are in a turning point, I'm going to ask you to come down to this altar and, and I want to pray for you. If you're going through a turning point, come on, I know, I know there's people here going through a turning point. Anybody want to join them? I believe God's going to hear our prayer. 
Okay. Can we have some folks come up behind these folks? So somebody's laying hands on, everybody's got somebody laying hands. We're not going through this life alone. We're not going through this alone. We're a family. Thank you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I'm going to pray right now in the name of Jesus. You are an amazing God, and you do amazing things in our lives, and sometimes we can't see what you're doing. And Lord, each of these people that have come forward right now are saying that they're going through a turning point in their life. They recognize the turning point, and they're not sure what the solution is, and they're not sure exactly what to do next, but we're just going to pray in the name of Jesus, your Holy Spirit, Father, would just move in these lives, that Father, you're going to bring insight and revelation, that Father, you're going you're gonna to let there be spiritual warfare and the enemy's going to have to flee. The enemy who, bring, who intends to bring us down and take away our hope and take away our confidence has got to let go. He's got to leave because God is turning mourning into dancing. He is turning our grieving into celebration. I pray, Father, that if any of these folks have... Uh, their actions have brought this turn around and it's, it's a result of something they've done. I pray you're going to forgive them for, for uh, bad behavior, Father, and let this be a turning point and a new beginning that your light, the light of the gospel is going to shine on them. Father, you said that we must be born again. And so, Father, right now we're recommitting our lives into your hands. Let your light shine on us. God, help, help in, uh, us to become aware of the, spoo- the Spirit, the move of your Spirit and what you're doing. Help us to see you at work where we've never seen him before. God, give us a new hope for this turn that we're going through. A new hope, a better hope, a better future. That's what you want to do for us. So, Lord, we're putting each of these folks into your hands. We're asking for you to do a work of renewal. Because we're praying this in Jesus' glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 God heard our prayer. He heard our cry. He's going to bring something good into our life. Let's not lose hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. We've got some prayer partners up here at the front. If you have a specific prayer, bring it to up here. People partner with you, and we'll see God do some great and amazing things. Lord, dismiss us with your peace and blessing and help us to walk out of these doors, different people, with an optimistic attitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 See you at Ricky Park, 1230.